All right. Hey, good morning, Christ Community Church. It is good to be with you and uh, an honor and privilege to open God's Word with you. If you have your Bible with you, app on your phone, please flip to Acts chapter 1. We'll be diving into Acts a little bit. Um, I love the Bible. Do y'all love the Bible? Do y'all love God's Word? Um, Scott, I'm not sure if it's going for me here. All right. There we go. Right on. I love God's Word. I, I think, um, I, I love how we can get microscopic with God's Word. We can take a verse, we can take a word, and God speaks so vividly as we get microscopic. But I also love how with God's Word we can really zoom out. We can get panoramic as we think about uh, this massive story that Jesus actually wants to write us in. And so with that panoramic, massive vision in mind, I just want us to sweep from Genesis, Genesis to Revelation before we zoom in and get microscopic on Acts, right? So Genesis, what do we learn about God is God is creative, God is an artist, God actually turns his triune communal love outward, and the creation is love turned outward, we learn that God, after six days, what does he do? He, he rests. He teaches us about himself with how he culminates and celebrates his love turned outward, creation, Adam and Eve, image bearers, all of it. He turns his love outward. He celebrates it with what? Sabbath. But sometimes in American modern sort of context, we, we think Sabbath, we go, oh, that's a really good nap, Right? But Sabbath is so much more. Sabbath isn't even just about rest, like a recharge to work. Sabbath is God actually drawing close to his creation. God intimately entering into fellowship, a celebrative posture of intimate relationship. What is God up to in Sabbath, day seven, is he's finding home with his creation. God is tabernacling with his people. But then sin enters the world, and what does God do? Levitical law, Deuteronomy, the tabernacle. Remember the tabernacle throughout the Old Testament? What is God doing? He's finding a home with his people. Jesus Christ puts on skin. God in flesh, John 1, 1 says, the word became flesh. Jesus became flesh. He's the eternal word. What is God doing in flesh? Jesus says he's tabernacling with his people. God is home with his people. And the audacious thing about the New Testament that we as believers in Christ, by his grace alone and a response of faith, we, are, we belong to him. What is belonging? Belonging is this idea of finding home. And God actually wants to fill us by the power of Jesus with his spirit. He wants to actually call us his tabernacles, foretastes of a kingdom come. We indwelled with the Spirit. God wants to find home in us. What's God going to do in Revelation one day? He's going to puzzle piece earth and heaven back together. God's so strong and he's so pure in his love that he has the power to literally make it all new, to fit it all back together where God fully is at home with his creation and his people again. What is the story from Genesis to Revelation by the power of Jesus Christ alone, this redemption that we're knit into? It is God finding home with his people. Isn't that amazing? That's the story. And we're written into it. We're invited into it. And so 
I want to say this. If you think about home, write this down. The rest in his reign is what it means to be at home with God. Our rest in his reign is what it means to be at home with God. And so you're like, dang, Mark, this is really theological. We're kind of zooming wide and high. And yes, we're kind of thinking in terms of a mountaintop, but context is important. Context of a specific book like Acts is important, but context within the grand meta narrative that we're invited into is important. So I want you to keep that in mind. But as we think about home, Scripture, and I'm going to pray here in a bit, we'll dive into Acts, but as you think about home, Scripture gives us a tangible, visible, sort of tactile way of thinking about home, and that's the table. So when Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper at the table, it's, it's, it's a symbol not just that invites us to remember all that Christ did, body broken, blood shed, what did he do on that Good Friday day, right? That we're knit back to God. We find home in God through Christ. We, his righteousness, right? We're yoked to him. We remember, but also the table, the communion table. Last Sunday, we celebrated communion, common union, communion table. Our com- we, have, we have union because of the power of Christ, but we have a common union collectively. We gather around the table. Table is a symbol of home. And so table isn't just we remember what Christ did, but table, common union table, common communion table is an anticipation because do you know what's going to happen in Revelation? There's going to be a great wedding feast. There's going to be a banquet table. Table is this tangible reminder that we gather and we find home in our God. Isn't that cool? All right, so we're going we're gonna to look at the table here in a bit. Um, let's pray. Join me in a word of prayer. Jesus pray that your name would be lifted high. Father, we pray that your word would be our rule, and may your Holy Spirit be our teacher this morning. And all God's people said, amen, amen. All right, where are my, where are my eight, nine, and ten-year-olds? Can I, can I see some hands? Anybody like knock-knock jokes? Any, 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 okay, how about adults? Anybody like knock-knock jokes? Are you with me? No, Deb says no. Okay, I'm not going to tell it. No, I'm, I'm not. I'm not so, so knock-knock jokes. My family, uh, last Thanksgiving, my in-laws give my family a knock-knock joke game. It's a deck of cards. We're flipping through this deck of cards. And there was one knock-knock joke in particular that was kind of instant classic in my household, okay? So here it is. Ready? Knock-knock. Bobby, Joe, John, Paul. How many Bobby, Joe, John, Pauls do you know? And so that, that was on one of the cards. I'm pretty sure my 10-year-old son, Will, fell off his chair. My family, like, erupted. Um, instant classic. The next, like, three days, the number of times I heard the name Bobby Joe John Paul, it was plenty. Let's just say that. But then there was about a month of radio silence. Fast forward a month. We go up to Minneapolis, okay? Family little getaway. We just settle into our hotel room. Um, I'm the dad in the family, a.k.a. pack mule. Any other dads like that? So I, like, drop bags off, go down for the second trip, come up with, like, bags all over me, knock on the door, okay? And as soon as I knock on the door, my daughter, Charlotte, like, opens the door. I'm one step in. A second after she opens the door, and she says the phrase, who is it? And she knew it, she knew it was me. My five-year-old son pops up from the back side of the hotel room and yells, it's Bobby Joe John Paul. <laughs> So, anyway, 
he just sort of reinforced this instant classic in the de Young household. And so I tell that joke to say that humor works that way sometimes, right? Like humor finds its meaning in a prior context. The book of Acts, so much of the book of Acts actually finds its meaning in a prior context. Did you know that the book of Acts is actually the second volume of a two-volume story? Did you know that? Acts is a second volume of a two-volume story. So, Acts 1.1, we hear this word began. Luke is the author of not only Acts, but Luke, this physician that traveled with the ministry, uh, missionary Paul, he, he actually wrote Luke. So Luke and Acts are actually a two-volume, one-story, okay? Luke is the life of Jesus pointing to the kingdom ministry of Jesus. Acts is the legacy of Jesus pointing to the kingdom, continued kingdom ministry of Jesus. This word began is so significant. This is where I want us to get microscopic. If there is one word that this whole sermon is about, it is about this one word. All that Jesus began. There are 28 chapters in the book of Acts. Guess what? Christ Community Church, you and I, we're Acts chapter 29. Isn't that amazing? We are a people of legacy. Jesus' life in Luke, Jesus' legacy in Acts continued to be written. What does it say in Hebrews? He is the author and perfecter of our faith, right? Hebrews 12. We are written into his story. We are invited to be a people of legacy. And so to think about Acts, we really need to read Acts in its context. Luke wrote these uh, two books, right? Luke wrote Luke, and then he wrote Acts. He wrote these two books to this dude named uh, Billy Bob John Paul. No, I mean, not or Bobby Joe John Paul. No, no, Theophilus. Do we have any Theophiluses in the house? Okay, Theophilus, right? Um, so Luke writes it to Theophilus, but he's trying to really get his readers to, to recognize that what Jesus did through his life continues to be that living witness through his followers by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so for me this last summer, I was really intentional as I was reading through the book of Acts. I was constantly mindful of Luke, constantly mindful of the gospel of Luke, constantly mindful of that, that meaning behind the meaning, that context behind the context. And what stuck out to me uh, this summer that I wanted to share with you all is to juxtapose and compare how Jesus instituted the table, the Lord's Supper, this, this remembrance, table of remembrance, but also this table, biblically, it's, it's a symbol of home. And the kind of home and the kind of people of the table that the, the people of legacy, the people of Acts were, and to compare and contrast what Jesus' disciples were like in that original home that Jesus was creating at the original Lord's table, and then how the people of Acts continued to fellowship around the Lord's table. And so this is Luke and Acts, okay? So to compare and contrast, before we dive into Luke and Acts, we have to name an elephant in the room. Do you know what the elephant in the room is? What's the elephant in the room? The third book of the New Testament and the fifth book of the New Testament. What in the world is the Gospel of John doing there? You th right, right? You thinking that, right? If, these are, if this is two volume, one story, what's John doing there? I don't have time, and you don't want to get into the geeky details of that, okay? It's like 
yeah, there, there's some really good reason. So I'm going to give you not my pastoral or scholarly wisdom on any of this, but I'm going to give you my gut on this, okay? Did any of you know a John? Do you have a John in your life? Any of you have a John in your life? Where they're just getting in the middle of places that they don't... You met one John, you met... No, okay. All right. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> my goal this morning was to offend all the in the room as a mark, right? I'm gospel mark. Hey, John. <laughs> no, all right. All joking aside, let's dive in. So let's juxtapose the P- Jesus creating this sense of home and the people of his legacy creating this sense of home. And we're going we're gonna to look at the, the stark difference. I think you'll see some stuff, okay? So Luke 22, Jesus institutes the Lord's table, okay? He institutes the Lord's table. Remember this language? My body, my blood, right? And there's three big things that stick out to me, how Jesus's disciples and followers, how they responded to the Lord's table in Luke 22, okay? They were arguing about who's the greatest. They were obsessed with their own needs, and they focused on their own capabilities. It's not super flattering, Okay, let's dive in one at a time. First, we see this self-promoting thing going on. Jesus literally says, I'm going to break my body and pour my blood out for the salvation of everything. And you're actually going to be knit to my body by taking the cup and taking the bread. And think about that. Like Jesus, what he does on the cross, talk about the epitome of self-sacrifice, the epitome of selfless love, the the epitome of self-emptying. And these knuckleheads that were with Jesus... The quick thing that they did after Jesus says, institutes the table, he says, one of you is going to betray me. And then instead of getting somber, like, is it me? We know it's Judas. But instead of saying, like, is it me and self-reflective, they start attacking and questioning each other, it says. And then they got rolled into an argument about who's the greatest when Jesus is talking about becoming the least of these. They weren't getting it, were they? But here's the good news. Here's gospel good news. Is that working? All right. My clicker's not working, Scott. I'm not sure if it died on me or what. There we go. Um, so compare Luke. They're arguing about this, who's the greatest, and then all of a sudden fast forward a few chapters into Acts. We see those same leaders, Peter and John in particular, okay? All right, John's, you hear that? I like John's, disciple of John, he's a good guy. Um, Peter and John, God used them to actually pour his power through them. A lame man walks, and the people around John and Peter actually wanted to exalt them to this godlike status. And of all the ways they could have responded, they said, no, the, the, it's not our own power and piety. It's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's it's it's." That God in the person of Jesus, by faith, that's how this lame man's walking. In other words, they went from self-promotion to promoting the exaltation of Christ in all things. Talk about a massive difference from Luke to Acts. A home that's obsessed with self-promotion to the promotion and exaltation of Christ. What happened from Luke to Acts? That's the question, okay? What did they do? On the side. Did I get it? Do you hear, Scott? You want to come grab it quick? You probably know better than I. Okay, so number two. All right, good job, everybody. We're staying focused. Um, so self self focus. Okay, 
um, self-focus is what we see. So fast forward, do you guys remember the Mount of Olives, the Garden of Gethsemane, right? And so this is Luke 22. They're, they're in this place, and Jesus is saying, hey, can you, can you guys pray with me? Can you stay focused in the place of prayer with me? And Jesus was obviously, we don't always see the nonverbals, right, through the ink of God's word, but it actually says, do you remember that part? It says that Jesus was sweating blood. Like, can you imagine the nonverbals of how stressed Jesus was, right? He's perfect, but he was stressed, wasn't he? He was sweating blood. He was feeling the weight of what he was going to anticipate. And you know how, like, when your friend is really struggling, that's when it's easy sometimes to, like, turn the dial up and go, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to intensify my love and meet them where they're at. And Jesus, he's needing their love in that time. He's saying, stay up and pray with me, right? They're in the garden of he's a, he's, a, he's a stone's throw away, and he comes back. And, and what happens is they, instead of dialing up their love, it actually says they were sleeping for sorrow. And so you know how sometimes we say, you know, when the tough gets going, right? Like it reveals the true colors of the content of our character. They were self-focused. They were focused only on what they needed. They were focused on the scarcity of their own sleep and what they needed, not what their rabbi, their Lord, was in need of, sweating blood, in need of. He needed his companions in the place of prayer. And so what's so interesting is they were sleeping in sorrow, right? They were focused in the scarcity of their own need. But then fast forward, and this is where we're going to have to click to the next slide, Fast forward to Acts. Instead of self-focus and scarcity mindset, they were generous. They were caught up in the abundance of Christ. It actually says that they were selling possessions. They were, they were distributing, not just focused on their own needs, their own tunnel vision, but focused on the needs of the community around them. Again, it begs this question, Luke and Acts, what is going on between Luke and Acts that leads to this significant difference? Okay, and third thing I want us to focus in on, can you click it for me, um, is this idea of self-reliance. Where are we at? Okay, yeah, very good. Thank you, Scott. Hey, can we give it up for Scott? Scott, hey oh, we've learned a lot about you today, Scott, and we continue to. You're the man. Thank you. Um, but yeah, self-reliance, right? Uh, Peter he goes, they, there's this little exchange in Luke 22 where Peter's talking to Jesus, and the only words that he says to Jesus is, Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death. Have you ever, like, intrinsically or, or, or just thought in your mind, like, like, am I ready? Am I ready for school to start this week? Am I ready for my job on Monday? Am I ready to wake up and go to church and praise God? Am I ready, right? Like, like, I think we implicitly kind of ask this question, am I ready, in a lot of different ways. But let's be honest, for a lot of us that have enjoyed the comforts uh, of the current context and moment that we're living in, how many of you have literally woken up and thought, I am ready to go to prison and to death, faced martyrdom? Think about that. Like, Peter's, he's, the, he's intense, right? And what we know about Peter is he's the rock that Jesus eventually builds his church on. What we know about Peter is he pipes up a lot, doesn't he? Um, throughout the Gospels, 
oftentimes put in his foot in his mouth. Um, but but he, there's a sense that you can almost get this, that, that he's, he's kind of an outgoing, valiant, optimistic, charismatic, maybe kind of disciple of Jesus. He, he had a lot of gifts and strengths, didn't he? And he had an intense vision in mind. He was ready. And what does Jesus, what does Jesus say to him? Next 12 to 24 hours, actually, Peter, you're going to deny me three times. Peter thought, I have this faith and courage, and I'm mustering in my own reliance all that I got. He thought he was going to be faithful and courageous, but he's actually fearful and cowardice. And I think there's something sobering for any of us if we're to consider our flesh and to consider what it means to to be in this place where this, I call it the three-headed cocktail of self-promoting, self-focus, and self-reliance. I think in our sin, if, if, if we sober to this reality that, that there, there's such a tendency to drift towards self, sinfulness and selfishness have so much to do with each other. And as Jesus was instituting home, his disciples really were pretty knuckle-headed and weren't getting it, were they? But there is a massive juxtaposition from a people of home in Jesus' proximity, his own disciples in Luke, versus what we see, these people of legacy in the book of Acts. And so as we think about, as we think about um, this three-headed cocktail, I, this, this is just my own gut, but I've been thinking a lot about what kind of environments breed self-promoting, self-focus, self-reliance, even as these disciples around Jesus, a lot of us, right, we're comfortable putting ourselves in the proximity of Jesus and being around a community, building around uh, Jesus. What's the environment that sometimes can accidentally breed this? And I wonder, this is, this is kind of my own um, thing that I'm wrestling with, is an environment of lukewarmness. There's something about lukewarmness that allows for this And so what happened in God's people from Luke to Acts, that they went from lukewarmness to legacy? Lukewarmness to legacy. What is going on? What can we learn as we think about this two-volume, one story that Luke is writing to Theophilus and for us to consider today? Here's my big pivot and my big point is I think it's prayer. I think it's prayer. Okay? Okay? Right before Peter says, Lord, I'm with you to, to prison and to death, what does Jesus, how does he break the news to him? Right before that, he says, listen, Peter, actually, Satan demanded to have you, to sift you like wheat, but I prayed for you that your faith wouldn't fail. I got good news for you this morning. Did you know that Jesus prayed for Peter when he lived his earthly life? That Peter, in this verse, there was some sense that the faith and courage of Peter And following Jesus was somehow dependent upon Jesus' prayer over him. And what's the good news of the book of Hebrews? What does it tell us? That Jesus died, rose again, ascended. He's right now reigning in majesty on the right hand of the Father in an embodied place. And what does the book of Hebrews tell us that this great high priest Jesus is doing for us right now? He lives to intercede for you and I. Amen is right. Think about that the unfailing nature of your faith. Do you know how good the Savior is? He's so good. He's such a good high priest. He prays for us just like he prayed for Peter. 
And if there's grace in any of this, God is so patient in his love. Think about these knuckleheads that didn't really get the home that Jesus was trying to create, but Jesus was so patient, wasn't he? As he walked in that resurrected place, as he showed up and as he ascended on high and as he continues to pray before he sends his spirit and Pentecost happens and poof, a people of legacy and a people on mission. Jesus prayed. Luke 22, if you read between the margins, what does he do right before he institutes the Lord's Supper? He lifts up the bread and cup, and what does he do? He blessed it. He prayed for it. What does Jesus do for his own disciples? He intercedes for them. What does Jesus do at that desperate hour of need in Garden of Gethsemane, begging his disciples to join him in it? Prayer. What also does it say in the Gospel of Luke? That often... This wasn't just like Jesus once in a while. There was a regular rhythm, a fabric, a ceaseless posture of prayer that was true of the Son of the living God. Jesus was a prayer warrior. I love how Pastor Mark shared this. Um, any of you here for the Holy Spirit series in May and June, Pastor Mark did a series on the Holy Spirit. One week, I, I just thought it was so good. We, we can sometimes... Think about, like, am I becoming more like Jesus? Am I growing in my faith? Am I becoming more sanctified? And we think about the fruits and the gifts and the articulations and the knowledge and the resources to give, right? And all these things that this is what it means to sort of grow deeper and be more sanctified in Jesus. But I don't know if you guys heard it. I heard it. Pastor Mark was talking about how it's actually this idea of are you more desperately dependent on Jesus today than yesterday? Are you more desperately dependent on Jesus today than a week ago, than a couple months ago, than a year ago? Do you want to know if you're growing in Jesus? Are you more hungry for the Lord to show up? Are you more desperate for the Lord to show up? Are you more dependent upon the Lord to show up? There's something about the upside-down kingdom and our King Jesus that the very night before his death, we don't see a flexed arm strength from this God. We see Jesus crying out to the Father, we see him crying out to the Father, not my will, but your will be done. There's something about this desperate dependence that Jesus invites us into. There's something about this desperate dependence that I think is the very fabric of the place of prayer. And what I love about the people of legacy in the book of Acts is it says they were, they were devoted to prayer. We in the English, we look at that word devoted and we go, oh, that's really cool. The very first thing that they do when Jesus ascends and they are in complete disorientation, this God in flesh that did ministry among them for three years dies and they're confused and then rose again and he's walking amongst them for 40 days and then he says, hey, you're going to be my witnesses, peace out. And he ascends up into the sky and the very first thing, what do they do? They pray. They pray, and they don't just pray. It says they devoted themselves to prayer. And then there's a summarizing verse in Acts 2 to describe really what the people of God were about, these legacy people, that they were about the teaching, and they were about fellowship. Fellowship built on the breaking of bread, home, and prayer. They were devoted to prayer. And we see it in English, and we go, oh, that's nice. That gives it a little intensity. If you, if you actually know Greek, the Greek word here, it's this devotion is this intensity, continuation, attending constantly. They were intensely continuing, attending constantly to the place of prayer. So maybe the, the grounding question I want to leave every one of us is, what's the nature of your prayer life? Is it desperate and dependent? And also, what's your prayer life like? Your prayer closet. What's your prayer life like in your homes that you dwell in? 
Christ Community Church, what's our prayer life like as a collective people of God? I think I can only just speak for myself, but I think sometimes the lukewarm environment that I, I feel like sometimes we struggle with is it, it can sometimes get me to prayer, pray prayers kind of like this. God, I'm on the side of the road, I got a flat tire, and I sort of need your help. And it would be nice if you showed up and really helped me, but if you didn't, I, I'd probably be all right. Like, it'd be nice to have you help me, but I wonder if, if that, it lacks a little bit of the reality of, God, I am drowning in the middle of the ocean, and if you don't show up, this is going to end badly. Do you see the difference between a help me on the side of the road prayer versus a drowning in the middle of the ocean prayer? I think sometimes lukewarmness can tame my prayer life, where I pray safe prayers, where sometimes I accidentally decide my own plans and will and ask God to bless it versus like Jesus radically saying not my will but your will be done Jesus was desperately dependent crying out to his Abba Father we see in the Garden of Gethsemane take this cup from me Lord but not my will but your will be done saved the word saved Old and New Testament 390 times throughout the whole Bible that's a lot What is God's relationship with his people? He doesn't just save us on the cross. He continues to show up time and again, over and over and over again. He has a legacy of salvation, doesn't he? Desperate dependence. God, if you don't show up. And we need to be saved from that three-headed cocktail, don't we? We need to be saved from ourselves, that tendency inside of each and every one of us in our sin to be self-promoting, self-reliant, and self-focused. And we need to be saved from that place. But the good news of Jesus Christ is we are saved to a place. That the power of the resurrection in Jesus Christ, by grace through faith, that in that place he actually gives us the power to cry out as Jesus cried out. That it's not just this desperate dependence, it's the strength to surrender day in and day out. Like John the Baptist, may I decrease so Jesus Christ, Lord Almighty, might increase. Amen? Amen? And so crying out, and I could talk on and on and on about this, but Genesis, okay, just one second. Genesis, Adam and Eve, they sin, they have two kids, Cain and Abel. Cain kills Abel. Cain has a kid named Enoch, builds a city. Adam and Eve have another kid named Seth. Seth has Enosh. Enoch, Enosh. And and, antithetical to each other. What does Enoch do? Builds a city. Self-reliant, protective. What does Enosh and the people of his generation do? It says they cry out to the living God. Genesis 4, end of it. The people of God from Genesis and most perfectly displayed in the fullness of God in flesh through Jesus Christ, not my will but your will be done, crying out, desperately dependent, and then the people of legacy in the book of Acts, desperately dependent. What's the first thing they do after Jesus ascends? They pray. They are people of prayer all that Jesus began. We can't add or take away from his salvation. Let me be clear. He said it is finished, amen? But Jesus said it is finished, and yet he wants to roll out the completion of his redemptive plan. He doesn't need us, but he wants us. He invites us into his legacy. He wants to author us in as Acts 29 people, because one day he's coming again, isn't he? And we get to be an anticipation, a foretaste of a kingdom come. We pray that God's kingdom come in this world as it is in heaven. We get to be as desperately dependent people upon the movement of the living God, being filled with this Holy Spirit. We get to be a foretaste of this kingdom come.
And let me just touch on this really quick. Prayer, if you read the book of Acts, it's all over the place. They prayed, they prayed, they prayed. They lay hands on each other. They prayed, they prayed, they prayed. And then there's little glimpses of the content of their prayer, but the longest prayer that we have in the entire book of Acts is Acts chapter 4, and I find it so fascinating. I think it teaches us about the groan of the people of Lacey in Acts. And you know what they prayed for in Luke 4? I got it up on the screen. They prayed for boldness. God, grant your servants that we would walk in boldness. We would walk in boldness. And then it says, and when they prayed, the place shook. Literally the foundations of the place shook. It was like an earthquake. And all of a sudden they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And guess what? Boom, boldness. I love how it says in John that we have a God who gives his spirit without measure. He gives us, he's so generous with the spirit that we would be a spirit-filled, prayerful people that we would be filled so that we too could declare the greatness of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ with all boldness. What if, like the foundations being shook in that space, those people of legacy, what if we were a people of legacy and God wants to shake the foundations of my lukewarmness and yours? What if he wants to shake the foundations of our self-promoting, self-reliant, self-focused tendencies? What if he wants to fill us with his spirit so that we could be those, those generous, we could be those other-focused, we could be those mission-minded, we could be those legacy people joining God in this great redemptive mission that he's got going in the world to make disciples of all nations so that the glory of the Lord, like the waters cover the sea, the glory of the Lord would be manifest everywhere. The only reason missions even exist is because worship doesn't. But one day, all people will bow, and there will be nothing but worship. But for now, we are called to be a missional people. And what's the fuel? Encountering the living God in the place of prayer. And what I love in Acts 1, right before Jesus ascends, he says, receive the power of the Holy Spirit, and you will be my witnesses. It's a promise. You, you will be my witnesses. And what does it mean to bear witness? It means to point to Christ. The Greek word for witness is actually marteras. Say that with me. Marteras. Marteras, if you jump from Greek to Latin to English, it's where we get the English word martyr. Jesus said that's what you're going to be. And a lot of Jesus' earlier followers, he didn't promise them comfort, but he promised them a fresh filling of spirit to be a people of legacy, to be a people of his story, marteras. Many of them were martyred, but the point is, is whether we're martyred or not, the point is, is we are called to be sold out, a people of boldness. How? Boldness doesn't come from busyness. Boldness comes from Sabbath. Boldness comes from resting in his reign. Boldness comes from being a people of prayer. Boldness comes from a devotion to say, God, as much as I needed you the first time I encountered your grace, I need you just as much today. As a matter of fact, the sanctification doubt, God, I need you more today than I needed you yesterday. Are you desperately dependent? Are you marked as a person of God's presence and the place of prayer? 
Boldness does not come from a busy life. It comes from a resting life, resting in the reign of God. And how can we rest? Hebrews talks about that. How do we have boldness to go into the courtroom? We have an advocate, don't we? We pray in what name? We pray in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. The one who came. The one who's coming again. The one whose story is one of belonging. The gospel and Christ spread his arms on that cross. What he was doing is he was saying, come. You belong to me. By grace. Every one of you. By grace. Just receive it. It's a gift by faith. You'll never earn it. Be my, my marteras, be sold out, be bold. You, this isn't earning it. This isn't praying the right words, praying the right thing. This is receiving. You see the word receiving? We receive this. God is a gift giver. Life itself is a gift. Love itself is a gift. Christ was offering his life through his love as a gift. Amen? And we are yoked in a place of home through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is gospel. This is good news. We are invited to be a people of prayer, marked with his presence forever, a people of his legacy. Let me close with uh, just this quick story. I got a couple quick stories, and I'll close. Um, Will and I, my oldest son and I, actually jumped on the Superior Hiking Trail this summer. It's in northeast Minnesota. Um, There's like 300-mile trail. It's a public trail. Will and I did about 12 miles one day, had a great time. In anticipation of hiking on Superior Hiking Trail, we, we were sort of reading reviews, reading guides, like, what do you, what do, you do um, on the Superior Hiking Trail? How, how do we think about this? And it showed up online a lot. A lot of people have done the Superior Hiking Trail that the, the phrase was noise pollution. You know, don't, don't leave trash, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, do this, do this, do this. But every, every time, guides would always say, noise pollution, don't, don't, don't step into noise pollution. And it was like, noise pollution? What they mean by that is don't let your words take away from the riches of God's beautiful creation that people want to just sort of soak in. In other words, have you ever thought about your words as a pollutant? And our words can be a pollutant in the Superior Hiking Trail, can't they? Where the things that come out of our mouths actually get in the way of people discovering the glories of God in the heavens, right? Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glories of God. All of God's creation declares the glory of God. People want to enjoy that. That's why noise pollution is a serious thing, that our words are a pollutant or they can potentially get in the way. And I was just so struck, and I was thinking about that. What if we treated our prayer life like that? What if sometimes in the place of prayer, our words actually are a pollutant? They get in the way. Sometimes I even find myself in the place of prayer, like talking, almost as if I'm trying to like do therapy with myself. And Pastor Carlos just read Psalm 46. What's the end of Psalm 46? Be still and know that I am God. For myself, I wonder sometimes if I'm just so busy talking that I'm, I'm not really attuning myself to the Holy Spirit's quiet whisper. I'm too busy talking in prayer and I'm not listening enough. There's a story, I know many of us know it in Scripture, Mary and Martha invited Jesus into their home. Remember the story? They, so they thought. 
Mary and Martha thought they were inviting Jesus into their home. Jesus came and dwelt in their dwelling. But actually, the story is Jesus was actually inviting Mary and Martha to find home in him. And Mary sits at his feet. And what's Martha doing? Flying around, serving, busy, 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 busy. And then Martha's so frustrated with Mary that Mary's chilling at Jesus' feet. What does she say? She goes, Jesus, like, tell Mary to, like, help me. And what does Jesus say? Martha, Martha, you're anxious and troubled about so many things. Mary's actually chosen the better portion. Mary's chosen the better portion. They thought they were inviting Jesus into their home, but Jesus was actually inviting them to experience home in him. That's prayer. Finding home with the everlasting God, the one who Sabbathed, the one who tabernacled with his people, the one through Christ's blood and body, us knit to him and in his perfect righteousness, one who advocates on high and intercedes, one who fills us with his spirit that we are the living witnesses and tabernacles of the living God, one who one day will fully have this massive banquet table where we get to be completely home, where there will be no more homesickness, there will be no more groan and ache deep inside of us, there will be no more brokenness, who loves us so much that's going to wash it all away and wash it all new, one who longs right now to fill you with his spirit, to call you to be his witness. Are we a people like Mary, who find home in God. I wonder sometimes in my own life, I'm more like a Martha. I'm busy, 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 busy. God, would you bless this thing? Would you bless this thing? Would you bless this thing? And I'm busy talking in my prayer life, and I just think like, man, how many times I've already charted my own plans, and I just ask God to bless it. And it's like, man, I just need to sit at his feet and tune my ears to really hear from him. Revelation 3. Be earnest and repent, Jesus says to a lukewarm Laodicean church. Not a knock-knock joke. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice, that's the incredible, incredible thing that in Scripture, if I have my Bible with me, we get to hear God's voice. Be a people of the Word, amen? But we are a people not just of His Word. We are a people of the Spirit, the Spirit of the living God, that we are Word and Spirit, that we get to be a people of His voice. He wants to dine. He wants to, what is the, what is the table? He wants to actually invite us to find home in Him, and He wants to find home in us. Ooh. It's a story of home. And we're invited in. So I'm going to